Hi there, I'm Anne-Marie McQueen, editor of Live Healthy, and this is the Live Healthy podcast. Each week we interview health and wellness leaders and talk about all the things that are good for you, which you can also read about in our online magazine, the only one of its kind for men and women in the UAE. And now, here's this week's guest. Today on the LiveHealthy.ae podcast, we have Dr. Ferial Luhar at the DNA Wellness Center in Dubai, and um, Dr. Luhar is an is an, a naturopath. Welcome. Thank, Thank you. you so much for uh, coming on the podcast. Always a pleasure to see you and talk to you. I love we talk, we talk a lot about health. It's I could talk about it all day. First off, I just want you to ask you the most basic question: mm-hmm. <laughs> What is a naturopath. What do you do? Because a lot of people think that you are woo woo and <laughs> foo foo. And so, what do you do? I am. Do I, do I, I am. But I am actually a witch doctor. <laughs> Thanks for the question. Yeah, it's a great question, and I do get it uh, often also. So I am a Canadian trained naturopathic doctor. I studied in Canada, where I'm from, where we're from. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And. Um, I graduated from the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine 16 years ago, so I've been in practice for 16 years, right? And so as a naturopathic doctor, there are certain tenets of what I do that are fundamental to my approach in terms of treating people. And the first thing is that it's all, it's very holistic, it's a very comprehensive way of looking at health, so we're not looking at uh, organ systems or tissues or parts of the body as separate entities, everything is holistic. And it's root cause medicine. So I could have a a number of people, maybe 10 people who come see me because they're experiencing headaches. But each of them would leave with a completely different treatment protocol because the reason that each person is having a headache is not going to be the same. And also each person has their own biochemical individuality, the way their body functions, how they deal with stress, how they absorb nutrients, how they get rid of toxins and so on. And so I use only natural medicines and natural therapies, plant-based medicines, homeopathic combination medicines, you know, Ayurvedic, Chinese, what have you. Um, The cornerstone of what I do is looking at a person's diet because food is also medicine. So, you know, I usually will encourage people that if they're coming to see me, that's the first place that we have to start is to look at what's going into the body and also what's coming out. And then we use all of the medicines um, as needed to actually treat or to support the body. So it's about removing obstacles to cure. It's also about empowering the patient to take charge of their own health. So I have many people over the years who've come to me and they've said, Dr. Farrell, I have this problem. Can you fix me? And I will say, actually, no, I can't because you're going to fix yourself with my support because I need you to be accountable for your health. Um, what are your diagnostic tools? I use a lot of different diagnostic tools. Of course, we have the typical, you know, doing blood tests and things like that, doing physical assessments and physical exam if needed. But of course, for me, functional medicine, I'm sure is a term that you've heard of. Um, and for the listeners, it's basically the same philosophy where you're looking at the root cause of disease and you're looking at things holistically. We have 
access to functional medicine um, tools in terms of testing, a lot of advanced testing that help us to look at hormones, help us to look at nutrient deficiencies, toxins in the body, um, you know, gut health and dysbiosis and on and on. And um, we also have access to looking at your DNA from an epigenetic point of view to see what kind of genes you inherited and if you have mutations on some of these genes that could manifest into a disease in the future if you it makes you more susceptible. And so the field of epigenetics is looking at how nutrients and lifestyle factors can actually silence some of these DNA patterns and help you to leverage your genes so that you're living optimally. And that's changed a lot in recent years. Oh yes, it's not. You don't have a life sentence if you have this genetic right problem. well as long as it's it's more along the lines of of the epigenetics that i spoke about so looking at at modifiable yeah. right um manifestations of of gene expression so it doesn't change the genetic code of no, course no. not um and it's also a tool that i didn't have access to when i first started practice oh, okay. so it's it's wonderful to have an example like of something you would find and then you could help sort of redirect. So I just did a, a DNA report on a patient just before I spoke to you and it was amazing because we look at things like lipid health so it helps me to look at their risk for cardiovascular events in the future, inflammation which is the key driver of so many chronic diseases, cancer and so on. So if they have inherited genes that are not functioning well in terms of inflammatory um, processes that means that they're prone to developing a lot of inflammatory conditions and that person already has a few of them. Bone health, so it's looking at possible risk of fracture, osteoporosis, bone density, things like that. Um, insulin resistance, so we can look at genes now that tell us whether your body has the genes that are not efficiently metabolizing certain kinds of fats or sugars and are going to put you in the direction of developing diabetes and so on. Um, one of the, the tools you use is the, is the Dutch saliva test, right? Saliva and urine test? Correct. Now, I know that this is used all over, but it's controversial. Some people say it's not approved by you know, a major medical body. It's not approved by the FDA. So what do you say when people say that? So I've been using the Dutch uh, tests, and there are different kinds of Dutch tests. We have a Dutch Complete and a Dutch Plus and so on for a few years now, and it actually comes out of the States. It's a company called um, Precision Analytical. And there are lots of doctors and lots of conventional doctors that are using the tests. And I think for me, you know, the proof is in the pudding that when I do the testing and I see what I see, and then I use the therapies to treat whatever the gaps are, and we start seeing patients that are improving and feeling better, I mean, that's kind of like, well, I guess it's, you know, as far as the whole FDA approval thing, to be very honest with you, I, I can't remember if they are or aren't. I just know that it's something that um, works. It's, it's effective at showing me what is happening inside a body in terms of not just the hormones that are being produced, <clears throat> but also how their bodies are metabolizing the hormones, how the hormones are being excreted out of the body. All of this is important. And showing us the stress hormone profile of a person, which is also important. And it's just getting in, like the way I understand it, is this right? You go to the doctor, they'll do tests, they'll do the blood tests, and they'll tell you you're fine. But people will still not feel well. And you guys kind of go deeper. Deeper, okay. exactly. Yeah, that's the best way to put it because... Um, you know, when, when we're looking at something just at face value, there's so much else going on behind the scenes, right? And so even if you're looking at hormones, it's the interplay between hormones, 
it's the metabolites that are produced after the hormones have been used and that's what we're looking at and there's no blood tests that really show us that. Okay. What made you want to do natural like did you ever consider being a doctor for like a medical Yeah, so I mean originally that had always been my my plan. Like I always knew I was going to end up in the medical field and originally it was about getting into conventional medicine, but interestingly I had people in my family um, relatives, uh, you know, that were getting sick and I would see them going from one sickness uh, developing into another chronic disease and they'd be taking all these pills and so many pills and pills and pills and then they'd have to take more pills for side effects. And I just felt like intuitively this can't be healthy, mm -hmm. that there must be some other way that people can start to uh, appeal to their own body's ability to heal itself, you know. And so um, originally my sister kind of started talking to me about homeopathy. And the, the, the thing that really I think was the, the main, I, I think you could say, introduction into this world was I did a course in reflexology and I was just amazed at how something like that could um, influence your health, right? And then I got more and more into it and, uh, and, I, and I met a naturopathic doctor actually and, and he blew me away and then I never looked back. Amazing. Yeah. Did your family think it was a bit wacky? Though? I got a lot of resistance from everybody to say to me, why are you getting into this? Why don't you become a real doctor? Uh -huh. Right. 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 Um, a lot of resistance. And it's crazy, though, because those same people are like my best patients now. Mm -hmm. they, they call me right away as soon as they've got something going on because there's been such a shift in consciousness about healthcare and about how we view illness and, and health. And I think being a naturopathic doctor right now is, is, is a really good thing, right? Yep. So you were telling me before that there's been a rise in gallbladder removal. Mm. And that, I, I think this is curious, why do you think that is? And why do we even need our gallbladder? No, you, you, don't, no you don't need right. your gallbladder. You, you, can, you can happily live without it. You know, that's the, yeah. that's the conventional view. So kind of I've just... Appendix, but yeah, exactly. So I've noticed that in the last maybe, you know, five to five to six, seven years that more and more, and, and I've practiced in four different countries and it, it, it's not much different one country to the other, right? That uh, more and more people are having their gallbladders removed because they've had a routine exam of some kind and it's shown that they've had, they've got gallstones or they're actually experiencing upper abdominal pain or right-sided abdominal pain or some digestive disturbance, you know, and... Uh, yeah, and so like in the last couple of weeks, in the last two weeks, I had four patients who are either contemplating getting their gallbladders removed or already had their gallbladders removed because they decided to just go for it mm -hmm. and were sitting on the fence and wanted to know my opinion. And it's come to the point that when I'm doing an intake with a new patient, I have to actually ask them, do you still have your gallbladder? Why are they considering getting it? What problem is causing so as I said, they're, they're, some of them have symptoms where they're okay. getting this pain, this okay. discomfort or right. pain or constipation. Sometimes they have pain between the shoulder blades because that's gallbladder referral pain. Right. And in some cases, there's been an attack, like there's been a gallstone that's actually been lodged that's into horrible. the bile duct, yeah. and that's a medical emergency, yeah. right? But these are not those patients. I have patients who've just gone to get an abdominal ultrasound for some other reason, yeah. and it's been found that their gallbladder has some stones in it, and they're small stones. And the first course of intervention is by those, uh, you know, doctors or their gastroenterologist is to say, just get the gallbladder removed because you are potentially sitting on a time bomb here. If that stone gets lodged into the bile duct, it's going to be a really bad situation okay. for you. This actually happened to a friend of mine too. She yeah. was very upset because she had these 
Yeah. So I'm, I'm certainly not suggesting that a removal of the gallbladder is not indicated when the gallstones are very big and too many of them, and it is impeding the gallbladder's when, function. When do you get gallstones? So usually people get gallstones primarily, A, because the diet um, is, is not healthy. So it's, it's, you know, most of the gallstones are made from cholesterol, okay? But that cholesterol is not your healthy kind. It's the, because we need cholesterol. It's, it's a misconception out there that cholesterol is bad. We need cholesterol, it's really important, and it is the precursor to making most of our hormones, right? But it, it, there is a difference between good and bad. And so if a person is eating a lot of fast foods, processed foods, unhealthy fats, trans fats, and so on, um, and sugars, by the way, then over time, you know, depending also on their genetics, um, if they're overweight or obese or whatever, they could develop these gallstones. But I will still beg to differ that the gallstones um, are not necessarily a problem where it's, uh, the gallbladder has just decided to stop working. The issue is actually the bile. So the function of the gallbladder is to concentrate bile. There's bile being made by the liver, so the gallbladder and the liver work very closely together. And then that concentrated bile is released every time a person eats a meal that contains some fats or whatever to be able to emulsify, to break down those fats, and then those fats are absorbed into the system. So at times what happens is if there's not enough bile being produced or it's starting to get a little bit, you know, um, sticky, let's say it's, it's thickening up too much, it can create a bit of a sludge, okay. like kind of like the consistency of clay. Yeah. So you know that if you leave clay out, it's going to dry up and look, like a stone, right? Yeah. Um, and so I have had situations where if I give the person bile factors, ox bile, things that are going to help, you know, apple cider vinegars, things that are going to help to improve that bile production, that sludge dissolves and even smaller stones dissolve and they don't need to have their gallbladder removed. But I think what's important, Anne-Marie, is to appreciate that the gallbladder is not like the appendix um, where we thought the appendix was useless and just this vestigial organ that has no function. In fact, the, the, the appendix is now showing that it does actually help with some of our digestive function, right? The gallbladder produces this bile to help you absorb fats. And there are lots of nutrients that require fat to be absorbed. Vitamin A, vitamin D, vitamin E, vitamin K. These are fat-soluble vitamins that are crucial for our immunity, our cardiovascular health, our vision, skin, even moods, right? And some of them are protective against cancer and so on, like vitamin E and A are powerful antioxidants. You know, vitamin D, as you know, is important for so many things and so many of us are deficient. So if you're taking those supplements but you don't have enough bile, you're not going to be able to absorb those nutrients. The second thing is it's also important uh, for toxin removal because the liver is our main detox organs and it, it needs the bile to also help with toxin removal. And a lot of people don't know this, but uh, the conversion of um, the inactive thyroid hormone into active thyroid hormone, and I wrote an article, remember, mm -hmm. with you, yeah. yes, on, on thyroid disorders, that conversion, 60 to 70% of it takes place in the liver with the help of the bile. So if people are having thyroid issues or might end up with a thyroid problem after removing the gallbladder, this could potentially be why. Okay. Okay. I guess the problem is always that people want to fix it. They don't want to, you know, they want it to be fixed now. 
right. over the cracks. And, and again, yeah. if, it, if it's needed because it's really uh, quite bad and the stones are huge and the patient is in a lot of distress and pain, it may be indicated in that situation. We don't want them ending up with with an emergency. But you know, the pancreas, the, the gallbladder, the liver, all of these enzymes that the pancreas produces, it could just be as simple as they just don't have enough enzymes, they don't have enough bile factors. And once you correct that, it's possible that the gallbladder could heal itself, right? So so it was it's just a phenomenon that I find that's increasing to the point where I, I'm starting to wonder like how many of us still have our gallbladders. Um, and, I, and I think it's important to appreciate why the gallbladder is okay. so important, you know. And from a Chinese medicine point of view, every organ is linked to a particular emotion, okay. right? So I don't know if you've ever, like, if you've ever heard that, that phrase of, you know, do you have the gall to do this, yeah. right? Yeah. It's because the gallbladder from a Chinese medicine point of view is about courage. It's about willpower. It's about assertion, being able to be assertive. So I also, you know, like invite people to think about that connection of if you lose your gallbladder, how does it impact you from that sort of um, energetic, emotional level? You were born with these organs. Mm. You should try to keep them as long as possible. Well, yes. I mean, every organ does have a function. Yes. Uh, Okay. So it's diabetes month. Yes. And um, diabetics are being hit hard. So I just wanted to sort of ask you why that is and what people can do to mitigate it if they're diabetic. Yeah, absolutely. So as you know, um, we're seeing more and more of the people that are having poor outcomes when they contract COVID-19. Unfortunately, uh, a large population of them have these kind of metabolic disorders, um, you know, cardiovascular or otherwise, and of course, diabetes being one of them. So uh, why is the question, right? Why do we have these poor outcomes? And so diabetics represent a large vulnerable segment of the population uh, when it comes to COVID-19. And there are quite a few factors. So if you want, I can touch on a few of these factors. So hyperglycemia, which basically means high blood sugar. A lot of people are walking around in a pre-diabetic state and don't even know it, right? They haven't formally been diagnosed. Um, And... So they are also going to be affected in, in, a, in a negative way. And looking at blood sugar control is really important for everybody, right? Because at some point with COVID-19, it has been said that 70% of the population, the global population will get it, right? We, we, right. we may or, or, or not be one of those people that gets infected. Some of us, I think, might have already been infected and our systems have resolved it. So if you have high blood sugar levels and it's poorly controlled, automatically that depletes your immunity. Okay. So we already have that as, as, a, as a problem. The other thing when it comes to diabetics is that diabetes is an inflammatory condition. And we also know that obesity ties into this with insulin resistance where a large proportion of people who are overweight or obese are also diabetic or are insulin resistant. So obesity in itself is also an inflammatory condition. Now what they found is that people who are obese happen to have poor lung function because the fact that they're obese puts pressure on the lungs and it decreases what we call alveolar capacity. So the alveoli are the actual um, gas exchange cells in in the lungs okay and now we're talking about COVID 19 which is a respiratory disorder right so you're already creating 
uh, a vulnerable situation there because of being overweight. And then yeah. if you add on to that being insulin resistant, that's going to be a problem. Um, the other thing is that diabetics tend to have a, a more like coagulated blood, meaning it's thicker. So if the blood clotting factors are not in balance and blood is clotting faster and more often, it could occlude the, the arteries, but it could also occlude the, the lung um, tissue, right? But I think one of the bigger ones is, is because it's an inflammatory condition, what has been found is that with the immune system being dysregulated, usually when you are experiencing an infection, your immune system sends out in these, these interleukins and cytokines, which are inflammatory mediators to help resolve the inflammation. This is a good thing. Unfortunately, in certain situations like with diabetics, what's happening though is it is a hyper state of inflammatory molecules you know, being sort of blasted through the system and recruiting more of these cytokines called a cytokine storm. Okay. Right? Yes. You might have heard, heard of this. this yeah. So when we have an exaggerated uh, response with these immune cytokines and we come into a cytokine storm, the cytokine storm, if it's not resolved properly and quickly, is going to start damaging tissue. So a lot of diabetics are actually suffering and maybe dying even, not so much from the COVID-19 infection, but from the destruction created by the cytokine storm on the lung tissue because the lung tissue becomes more permeable, oxygen perfusion decreases so they're not able to breathe well, the lung tissue and the, the, the you know, there's what we call hyperpermeability so it starts to bleed and there's other organ damage, kidneys start to fail and so on. So it's all of these factors that are putting them in a much worse um, state as far as the prognosis. Okay, so <laughs> what can someone do? What can someone do? Yes. Million what, dollar what question, do? right? Yeah. I mean, as a naturopathic doctor, the first thing I would say is, you know, you gotta, you gotta look at prevention first, right? That's usually the first place to go if, if possible. And um, tight glucose control is gonna be imperative. So if you are diabetic or if you don't know what your blood sugar levels are, the first thing I would encourage people is to find out. Make sure you get your fasting blood glucose checked. I check fasting insulin in all of my patients because it's the first marker that actually starts to go awry before you even start to see problems with the fasting glucose. Get your HbA1c checked, which is a measure of glycosylated hemoglobin. So how sticky are your red blood cells based on how much sugar is in the system. And it's been found, I think they did a study recently, I believe in, in either the UK or China of 5,500 people. And they found that people who had an HbA1c of 7.5 or greater prior to hospitalization because of COVID had much severe, more severe outcomes okay. than those people whose HbA1c was much lower. HbA1c. HbA1c, glycosylated okay. hemoglobin, and find out what is your status, right? That's number one. And if you are diabetic, then it's important to look at other factors. So again, from my point of view, it's going to be diet, right? Make sure that you're not eating refined carbs, fast foods, things like that. Get more healthy fats, more organic, whole, a very plant-centric sort of diet. You know, if you're going to eat your, your meats and poultry and things like that, make sure they're organic 
um, along with the fruits and vegetables, but we need to really increase the fiber intake because when you eat more fiber in the form of these fruits and vegetables and nuts and things like that, you're, you're keeping those blood sugar levels stable longer, right? Um, and hydration is going to be important. So those would be some of the things. And then removing, you know, quote unquote, white foods containing wheat. <clears throat> so this is all high glycemic index foods. Um, so your breads and pastas and so on. If you love rice, opt for brown rice or black rice. You know, if you like pasta, try and get something that's made from another grain other than uh, something that, that's got the gluten-containing wheat. So those are some examples. But then you can go further than that and look at natural medicines, you know, um, supplementation that has been shown to improve um, insulin sensitivity. So things like chromium is one of them. You know, zinc is another. And zinc is amazing because it's also been shown to actually inhibit viral replication. So it inhibits the virus from being able to reproduce itself. Okay. This is why zinc was all sold out on iHerb. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> exactly. COVID, you couldn't get zinc really anywhere. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. So you're at least hitting two things with one stone because you're helping your immunity and you're helping the diabetes, okay. right? And then I use a lot of really beautiful botanicals, things like um, bitter, melon, Things like berberine, which is the active ingredient in like golden seal or bayberry or something. But you can get the berberine as is. Okay. Um, and berberine, by the way, has been shown in many studies to be as effective as metformin. What does that mean? Meaning metformin is one of the main oral hypoglycemic drugs okay. that's given to diabetics okay. to lower their blood sugar wow. levels. So berberine wow. is being shown to be just as effective. Okay. But again, berberine also is really powerful. Uh, for your immunity, okay. right? It's, okay. it's an antimicrobial um, as well. Okay. And then, you know, things like cinnamon. Like every diabetic should be having mm -hmm. two teaspoons of cinnamon every day in their beverages or whatever. Make sure it's organic. Okay. Uh, so those are some other potential things that, uh, that you can do. Fenugreek, turmeric, you know, these are things that you can add to your diet um, that are really helpful for lowering blood sugar levels and for mostly for driving that inflammation down because this is the underlying issue is the, is the inflammation. So again, talking about that cytokine storm, you know, if, you're, if you do contract the COVID, hopefully your immune system can regulate it and not get you to a point where you have that storm. Right, right. Yeah, because once that storm happens, that's really... Right, and then movement. Movement is, is important. Right. Um, and I know with a lot of us in lockdown, it's really hard to get out in nature, uh, which would be the best thing to do. It's the best buffer, really. But any kind of movement, there's so many online, you know, videos on, on workouts. And my advice is always do what you enjoy, do what you love. If it means just putting on your favorite dance music and doing some housework. But everyone's making it so complicated about movement, but the more you see the studies, they're just movement. Yeah. It's just staying movement. Correct. Whatever you enjoy. Whatever you enjoy, as long as you're doing it for 30 minutes a day, yeah. getting into a little bit of a sweat, yeah. you know, changing it up a little bit, that, that's great. Um, so I do certainly, you know, encourage people to, to do all of that. And then just manage your stress, right? Like everybody's stressed out. Okay. Um, the pandemic has been hard on everyone. Mm -hmm. But uh, we need to manage our stress hormones, our stress levels. And um, I mean, for a lot of people, including myself, you know, I, I always look at, well, what's the gift mm -hmm. of this pandemic? Where have there been positives? Uh, whether it's helping us to slow down a little bit, helping us to reevaluate things, 
helping us to be more innovative about how we're going to work and and continue with our social relationships and so on you know spending more quality time with each other in a certain way more self care mm-hmm. right all all of these things i think let's also recalibrate our energies and and focus on the positives of what this has taught us rather than focusing on the fear aspects so much which yes. causes more stress right living in a state of fear is not healthy for anyone and that then also depletes your immunity further yeah and um, I think what's hard on people now is it's just going on so much longer, right? So yeah. there's a bit of a depression setting in, even if you don't have it in a clinical sense. There's just like that heaviness that's hard. Absolutely. It's hard for everyone. And I think you and I being in the UAE, you know, we're a little bit better off in that we have the weather that is still sunny and warm and lovely. But people living in other hemispheres that are going into winter now. And more lockdowns. So more lockdowns. And the, now on top of it, the flu virus, right? The flu season. Right. So it's so I think it's even more imperative that they take care of themselves, and you know use the food as medicine, um, mm-hmm. remove you know anything that's toxic, um, and and just just recalibrate. Okay. And just on vitamin D, um, would you just take vitamin D on your own? Like, what's your advice on that? Because I think people are confused about how much to take and what yeah that's such a great question what's your just general advice on it so my general advice is i mean look i think pretty much 90 percent of the population is deficient so you know i think if you're taking a low dose vitamin d that you are deciding to do on your own you're probably okay right it has to be d3 by the way because that's the active form okay so you can get d2 as well but then that has to be activated into the active form so rather just take the d3 Of course, the best way, the cheapest way, is just get your hands and face, you know, exposed to sunlight. Morning sun is best if you can, and um, 15 minutes, that's all you need, right? But, you know, sensible sun exposure. So uh, I'm not a huge proponent of putting on tons and tons of of sunblock um, because you do need the sunlight, you need the vitamin D, right? So if you're gonna be out there for an hour, then you have to be sensible. Then, of course, take care of, of yourself and do what you need to do. Uh, with the sunblock or with wearing, but it's unprotected. Fifteen minutes unprotected. Unprotected. Which is hard for people to wrap their heads around. That. Unprotected. Okay. Unprotected. Yeah, because also we've been fed all the stuff about skin cancer and yeah. and so on. But interestingly, vitamin D is needed to protect you from cancers. Right. Right. <laughs> so that would be the first advice. More than that, what I would say is wherever possible, everybody should know their vitamin D status. Okay. You should get your blood test done. I also do mine every few months. Okay. And um, if, you, if you have access to somebody who can interpret it for you, I have to mention, Anne-Marie, that the conventional, um, you know, in, in terms of the interpretation of vitamin D levels um, is different than the functional medicine or the naturopathic okay. interpretation, so, right? So. so meaning that, let's say you were sitting at a level of 30, um, and, and most conventionally trained doctors will say to you, that's perfect, you're normal. Mm-hmm. But if you came to see me, I would say, no, you're suboptimal. You're, mm-hmm. I would say, bordering on deficient. Mm-hmm. So I need to see it at above 50 to okay. say you're okay. Um, above 60 to say you're great. So anywhere between 60 and 80 is the best range. With vitamin D, there is a sweet spot, though. You, 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 uh, you can actually take too much, right. which is not good for you because you would end up with a vitamin D toxicity, and we don't want that. So I do monitor my vitamin D uh, levels with all of my patients. I don't let them just willy-nilly take uh, vitamin D. And I, I do tailor the dosing. So I will have patients 
who are easily taking 10,000 international units of vitamin D a day. Mm -hmm. And I will have others that are only taking 1,000 because right. it really depends where they are on the scale. Right. I have some patients who are taking 60,000 international units in the form of an injection or a pill once a week because their levels are so low mm -hmm. that they really need to boost it up, right? right? And then I have others who, um, they jump up very quickly. So you gotta monitor it. I guess what's worrying is someone hearing, oh, vitamin D is good for what you're hearing all the time and then going and ordering some and taking too much. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. You yeah. can take too much. Okay. And so you need to know your initial baseline number yeah. to know the dosage you should be on. Yeah. And then once you've hit that sweet spot, you gotta drop down to yeah. a maintenance dose. And it's never over. Right, because you get your vitamin D up, and then you, you know. Yeah, you know, look, so. vitamin D is very hard to 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 increase and to maintain, okay. um, and so unless you're someone who is out in the sun often and your liver is working well because it has to be activated through the liver and kidneys, and you're eating healthy fats because vitamin D is a mm -hmm. fat soluble vitamin, and you have a gallbladder, okay. <laughs> then you're good. Okay. Yeah. Complicated as ever, but you explain it really. So Thank much. you. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was my pleasure. It was awesome. Hope to do it again. For sure. All right, cool. That's it for this week. If you liked the podcast, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'll see you next time on the Live Healthy Podcast.